0: Good morning, good morning, everybody, and welcome to Sunday Morning Live. This is the 3CR Gardening Show. My name is A.B. Bishop, and I'm live here in the studio with you today. Um, But the only other person in here with me is Liz. Uh, So hi, Liz. Thanks for producing today and for doing our socials. Uh, Got a quick, quick shout and thank you early. And um, zooming from their home bases today, we've got two fabulous guests for you today. Uh, both are incredible uh, landscape designers. First of all, I'd like to welcome someone who is not new to the show, Loretta Childs. Good morning, Loretta.
1: Good morning, AB. Good How morning, are you? Good morning it is. Oh, it's, yeah, I'm well. I'm mean, looking at the Yarra Valley going, wow, what a beautiful, glorious morning we have.
0: Yeah, and you are on top of a very big hill that looks out across the entire Yarra Valley.
1: Yeah, that's sort of, you know, someone's got to do it, A bit. It's <laughs> just one of those things that we have in life But yeah, the sun is out and the, everything's glistening. Because of all the rain, you've got that beautiful dew over everything, so it really enhances
0: Yeah, for sure, and I actually often wonder how you guys get anything done there because I have to drive past your place uh, regularly to get to work and to go shopping and things, and half the time I'm just stopping at the top of the hill there looking out Mm. across the valley. There's often a beautiful mist uh, with the balloons popping through, and it's quite incredible. Yeah, it is lovely, and it's a really thick layer. We call it
1: Yarra Glum. Uh, because of course uh, we're up in the you know sunny sun sun, and the whole valley is just one huge carpet of of fog and mist. It's just beautiful though. Yeah. It really is gorgeous.
0: Yeah, fantastic. Well, I look forward to coming back and talking about your garden and what's going on with your projects and things like that. But for for now, I'd like to welcome someone who's new to the 3CR Airwaves. And um, this is a wonderful landscape designer from STEM Landscape Architecture and Design, Emmeline Bowman. Good morning, Emmeline. Good morning, A.B. (laughs) How are you?
2: Oh, I'm good. It's um, it's chilly. I I don't have the sweeping hills like Yarra Valley just yet. So we're uh, I'm in Thornbury. So, but um, we have had a lot of rain as well, and I've got a little garden too. So things are happening, and the flowers are coming out, and it is a great day. So
0: yeah. But I hear you soon will be roughly in the Yarra Valley. <laughs> That's it. I can't wait. <laughs>
2: Put my little mark of patch of paradise. But, yeah, we um uh, we have bought a little property up at Hoddles Creek. So um. Yeah, I hope to transform it into a little spot where I could bring all the animals back and,
0: yeah. Beautiful. And And you do have a a very strong focus on animals and uh, native plants in the designs you do. Could you maybe give us a bit of a background to yourself, how you got into landscape design, all that sort of thing?
2: Of course. So, yeah, I'm fascinated with animals. I I absolutely love them and um, I've always gone onto the notion of how can I bring them back or create habitats for them. Um, Because when I was little, I thought I could work at a zoo or whatever, but I thought, nah, let's go one step better and try and make these little outdoor wild zoos in a way. (laughs) So, um, yeah, I used to live um, down in East Gippsland and my dad uh, rehabilitated the creek. And basically that's where it started, my love for wildlife and animals and how just planting all the trees there just brought everything back And over the years, I got to see that transformation and that develop and, you know, become quite mature. And as the maturity progressed, so did the wildlife. And so, yeah, I did landscape architecture and my master's was looking into how to bring in animals and species. And I thought, you know, one day I'm going to create a business a bit like this. And um, that's where STEM sort of came into play. So, yeah, basically our business model is to create gardens um, using native and indigenous plants and of course, some exotics. And um, so we can bring back some of the species make like a conservation effort. And so um, my philosophy is like, if we bring a little bit of it back, it's a conservation effort to preserve local species, but it's also to spark that curiosity, especially in children, because it was the backyard that I grew in love with and seeing all the critters and the bugs. And I think as a child, if you're exposed to that, you're more likely to take it on as an adult. So.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah sure. A
2: a basic rundown. Yeah, yeah,
0: fantastic. And I've seen uh, a number. I follow you on Instagram. You're, you're STEM, STEM architectural? Em, uh, STEM Emmeline Bowman. STEM Emmeline Bowman. Fantastic. And you, we can see your projects there. And some of the projects are massive, similar with Loretta. Mm. Some of the projects that mm. you both do are, are absolutely huge. So how do you um, go about, uh, I suppose, designing um for example, frog habitat. When you when you're going onto a big property,
2: yeah. Uh, usually, first is a site analysis and seeing how the land or the yeah the land works on that property and the water flows. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of the properties tend to have an existing dam, and which is great because we can really you know, tweak that dam and and make it so it's like a wetland. We change the levels up and bring in rocks. But if it doesn't have a dam. Again, we just look at the water flows and we offset water from the house or how do we we bring that water in? Um, And then we obviously have a planning process and I develop that habitat. I also do a lot of investigation of the existing plant species that used to be in the area. So I go on Nature Kit and we do a, a lot of just investigation around local areas like green wedge zones and things like that. And you start to understand what were those species there and what other existing animal species were there? So you're sort of designing for them, and then there's a long planning process, and then out comes the trucks and then we start digging it up. It is quite it's quite a lengthy process. That's the very basic version of it, mm-hmm. but. Um, Yeah, but from small to large, the process sort of stays the same. It's just obviously larger projects take a lot more time. Yeah. And And a lot more variable conditions. I was thinking
1: about the small ones, Em, like what's so interesting is the fact that you're talking about being able to have this in Thornbury, have your own habitat, your own space in Thornbury, which is um, I think so incredibly exciting because I think habitat is what's missing in the city. You know, we have all these formal gardens, we even a few natural gardens, but at the same time, you don't really get the habitat. And mm. uh, to create that, I think, is marvellous. It's a wonderful. Yeah.
2: Day. I've got a tiny, like I've just been trialling here where we rent and I mean we've got all the other gardens to look at as well, but um here I've gone crazy. I've got a tiny garden, i put a mixture of indigenous and native plant species in. And I the the house that we live on has got all oh, a massive concrete driveway. So I was like very interested to see what would come into this garden in particular. And you know once the plants are established, I had silver eyes, mm. I've had some skink species. I don't know where they've come from, we've got frogs, and I'm like when I tell you this garden is tiny, it's like you know you could probably a cat in there, it's that small, <laughs> like mm. it's very small, and it's just thriving and it it was a really good little um yeah a bit of a research project for me because I just couldn't believe
0: that such a small space changed it so quickly, yeah. and that was in two years and and so that's uh, a rental easy. property, is it?
2: Yeah, the these red you should have said the garden before I tell you what the, the people who own this property are pretty gonna be pretty happy with it. <laughs> I think that's
0: why they haven't brought our rent
2: up been here for But yeah, the garden you should have said that it was red, dyed red tan bark with a um a like a half uh, a broken down
0: little laurel, that was it. Mm. one Lamandra. It looked mm. like it seen better days. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. I guess yeah. so many people they if if they don't if they're not comfortable with gardening, it's really hard to know what to do. And I understand on one level why why people just either bring mulch in or pebbles or even fake turf because sometimes even when you're a trained horticulturalist, it can be confusing, can't it? I absolutely agree.
2: Yeah. And that's why, you know, we're here to have – it's always so good to have these Instagram channels and obviously the radio station because – it's a really good way to talk about some of the plant species that we use. And you can go visit you know, your nurseries and get that information as well. But, um, yeah, these conversations are great because it, it gets you sort of to think about, you know, what you can do, encourages you to do a little bit of investigation yeah, and try it yourself.
0: For sure. It. And do you have oh, – well, first of all, are you close to bushland or parkland where you are? Is that why you think the birds have come in? I think so. That is usually the biggest –
2: like if you've got a bit of a green wedge, but yeah, we're on Darebin Creek, so mm-hmm. uh, exactly a kilometre. So if I do my run, it's a kilometre of running, that's all.
0: Yeah, okay. <laughs> that's not a very long um, run. I <laughs> ten times. I do the an I, <laughs> I just hate
2: running for a long time, but at least if I do the kilometre. Um, yeah, Darebin Creek is right here. So it, it absolutely helps, and that's why – when I say it, it's a really, if everyone in the street or, you know, some people just um, added a few little bits of plants or that little bit of habitat, what you're doing is you, you could be connecting these little green spaces. So you're allowing basically like, a, yeah, a little connected channel for species to be able to infiltrate. And we've got a lot of adaptive species, especially in urban areas. You know, we've got a lot of smart animals that have learnt to live with humans, mm-hmm. um, I think. And, and that's, you know, that's the way that uh, all this planet's evolving. You know, they have to learn to live with us. And, and we also say, have to learn with them.
1: Yeah, would you say, I mean, I, I sort of find it difficult to even consider a garden without water um, mm. and, and I think, people are also perhaps not as aware that it does not have to be a huge area of water um what that brings in the way of insects in i mean i know people always say oh you know mosquitoes la 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 but i mean at the same time you know you can balance that habitat with your mosquitoes with all the things that might eat the mosquito larvae etc etc which i know um is what you'd incorporate
2: in those habitat gardens that's exactly it and so even with this little garden we have here, you know, it's so small. We still incorporated a little tiny pond. It's only about a meter in diameter. I've had no mosquitoes, by the way, and I think it's to do with the amount of plants. Um, I put a couple of pygmy perch in there. These small little native fish. Yep. Um, and yeah, if you go outside, you can only hear like one or two species of the microbats, but they are around the area. You can hear the little mm-hmm. noises. Yep. And they eat mosquitoes. So if you do have a healthy habitat, you know, these mm. things really help. Um, yes. So, yeah, but water is a biggie. You hey, bring in a little bit of water.
0: Em, mm. can you talk us through maybe how you installed your pond just because it's a small garden? I think some people will be keen to hear the whole process of how you went about it.
2: Yeah, okay. So this is a really basic one in your back garden. So, um, we, first of all, I said I'd love a pond and I, I would usually dig it, but my partner dug it. So I went outside and I see this great big mound and I find my partner down the bottom of
0: the hole. So that was a Convenient.
1: Lot. <laughs> Although so was depth great. is obviously, um, I mean, depth, or, I mean, when I do water, um, depth is really important there. It is.
2: So we always go on the notion of um, shallow, medium and deep zones. So you want to make sure you have a deep zone so you have really cool water. Um, cool water means that the oxygen and the coolness doesn't break down materials as quick. But then you have to have the shallow and the medium depth. And that's because you're planting to these areas. And what, yeah, what is
0: shallow, medium and deep?
2: Shallow ranges from, you know, zero up to about 20 centimetres, mm-hmm. um, depending on how big the wetland is or what you're dealing with on a small scale, probably be about that. On a larger one, you can go up to like 40 centimetres, actually mm-hmm. so go from there. Mm-hmm mediums anywhere from 30 centimeters down to about a meter and then your deep zones anywhere from, you know, a meter up to three or four meters. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's what we work with. And you just have these little shallow shelves. Um, I create a little, when I think about these ponds, I've got to create a medium for these plants to go in. So what we do is we mix a little bit of sand with normal garden soil or Mm -hmm. like a sandy loam mix because you don't want any floating debris and all those sort of things Mm -hmm. in the water when you think about wetlands it's a silty soil that enters slowly into these systems yeah. and that's why the plants roots can grow in there so that's all we add and the
1: backyard one though just thinking about if we're talking about creating that small one in your backyard you're not going to go two meters no you know and <laughs> i'm just i just wanted to clarify that because it can yeah. be confusing that
2: is really i'm glad you brought that up Loretta because uh obviously safety is an issue as well so you've got to be really mindful and I think that will take a real common sense approach so if you in this pond it's about 80 centimeters deep um, in the deepest spot and I've popped rocks and things in there so if there was ever something where someone fell in there's always like a ledge to sort of get out mm. but um, yeah so be very mindful of where and and how deep and where it is situated in that sense and put those rocks and logs around so you have got to an area to climb out as for the animals the animals need to be able to if they fell in they need to climb their out another thing too that i didn't touch on obviously in large applications you can go clay line stands but these are all little lined ponds mm. so you've gonna you can go down to your local landscaping store and get a little rubber liner and that's how you shape it first make those little ledges and then you pop your stand and your soil in over the top of that mm. And then, and then i usually fill it up halfway the soil gets quite saturated and then I bring in some plants and I usually mix it up a little bit. I use some rushes and then so things, if you're on a smaller scale, Eliocaris acuta is a really nice one. It's a smaller rush, only gets it up 30 centimetres. Uh, and then I bring in milfoil, which is the marophyll and crispatin, water milfoil, great frog habitat, great fish habitat. Um, the last which is the running marsh flower. If you want some native lilies, little beautiful, fluffy yellow flowers. And if you want some other colour, um, Lithium salicaria, which is purple loosestrife. strife. It looks like a pink salvia, basically, of mm. the water. Really, really pretty. Goes deciduous in winter, so you cut it back. Then it comes up with a of pink. And if you do have problematic soils around the areas, like say you've put this pond in because it's a boggier area because you, you've figured out all oh, this area is, you know, I can't grow anything here. I've got a lot of moisture. I'm going to put my pond here, but it's still a little bit boggy around the edges. You can put some really lovely plants around that area for boggy areas. So that's, um, Polluticola, which is a, a white basalt daisy mm-hmm. or a swamp daisy, um, and Crespidia verabilis, which is like a tinier version of the famous billy buttons and they do really well.
1: So looking at the um, the situation with you've got to have a certain amount of uncovered water let's say so you know that proportion can you talk about that proportion of not having all the water covered because you're not going to get the light Mm. in?
2: Yes so I usually make like the deep end end up being the area where it's not going to have any surface cover, so to speak. Um, And I'd probably say that that would occupy around about 50 up to 70% of Mm. my pond. Uh, Because you got to imagine when the water comes in, a lot of filtration happens on the edges. Yep. And yes, exactly what Loretta said. It allows light to come into the water which helps change or like, that diversity in the
0: water. But um, uh, yeah, joking. I guess you, sort of, <laughs> you need both um, sun and shade. You need a certain amount of sun that's to color, be color. developing those algae levels, which is food in itself. And But you don't want too much suns where you cre- end up creating too much algae.
2: And that's where, I guess, this is where the experimentation comes into play because when you, when you develop these ponds or these little, little mini bog gardens, they evolve into their surroundings. So if you start popping your plants in, you will find that they naturally balance themselves. So I've always found that if it's a really light environment, you'll get more plant growth. And obviously there's going to be more algae blooms because of if you, if you have, like if you have a nutrient problem, you'll see algae blooms. That's a problem not always if it's only a little bit of algae that's fine but if it's major that means there's something going on that there's too much nutrient coming into your pond and you'll find usually that if you've planted quite a sufficient amount of plants they will just go gangbusters and try and compensate for that nutrient same with um azola people don't usually like azola too much azola comes in to fix nitrite problems and nitrate problems um, they're incredible filters and they're going to fix that water and you can take it off and use it as fertilizer Mm. um so yeah systems do balance themselves if you've you know popped in enough plants yeah so if you were looking at um what we're talking about a
1: backyard which i think is there's so many people out there who are thinking oh oh, you know when the summer's coming and i'll dig a beautiful little pond um let's talk about maybe there being three species five species four species because to really balance it you've talked about a lot of plants which sounds so exciting but if you had three four five whatever you you believe would suffice in that small pond what would they be
2: yeah so like i said before if you've got a small pond the eliacara circuita because you've got a rush species um if you're going for any other sort of rush or sedgy species you could go for Carex oppressor like a yeah just a yeah um losing my train of thought yeah yeah and if you're going in for habitat or really good filtering species, uh, the milfoil, which is mm. um, Mariphalum crispatum, um, nadu, which is um, Marsilea drummondii, or you go for a mutica if you like uh, the sort of lily look. Thalacia um, remniformis, which is what I spoke of before, the running marsh flower. And if you wanted a little bit of structure and colour, the Lithrum, mm. mm. and some yeah and the um, Praspidia verabilis and things like that. Yeah. They're really good basic ones that you should be able to find in your nurseries throughout Victoria, Melbourne region. Yep. And I always find if you use those ones, you've got a good uh, combination of rush and aquatic species and a little bit of that riparian planting as well. Mm. If you pop those things, you've got a basis to get this system kick-started. And then you can kind of go, oh, what other kind of water species can I start playing with now too?
0: Yeah. Hey, guys, I'd like to continue this conversation, but I just need to interrupt and let uh, listeners know that you're listening to the 3CR Gardening Show. We are live here today and um, joining me via Zoom. So I'm A.B. Bishop. Joining me via Zoom are two landscape designers, Loretta Childs and Emmeline Bowman. I'd like to uh, essentially open the lines. If anyone has a question, you won't come through um, to the show live but Liz will be able to pop your question up on the computer for me to read out and we'll be able to answer it. So please feel free to give us a call on nine four one nine, o one double five, or you can text through to us 0488 809 and you can email us, but um, we might not end up getting to that particular questions um, until next week, just because um, I can't sort of access email while I'm in the studio here. Um, but for any time you want to email us, it's just 3CR, so that the numeral 3, then cr.gardening@ gmail.com so please feel free to um, contact us somehow if you want to talk frog gardens if you want to talk any landscaping issues um, or anything really Um, well let me clarify that anything gardening related (laughs) so um, uh, Loretta now I know you do a lot of um, fairly big scale water projects as well Is Mm -hmm. that um, the way that Em has been um, talking about how she goes about it? Is that the sort of way you do it? I know that you incorporate a lot of rocks as well.
1: Mm. Yes. Well, I suppose rocks become a primary um, part of my landscaping when it comes to water. And uh, recently I did a a natural swimming pool, which um, I'm sure Em would love to see. And uh, being in the valley soon, she will have to see it. So, <laughs> But that sort of thing where um, it's, it's a lined pool um, okay. and it has the two areas uh, and it's all rock. It has rock sort of steps going down into it. It has a, a big rock division where the water sort of obviously moves between both and it's about 400 above those rocks. But I think um, it, it's certainly an area where I think this is a situation where you can actually have swimming as well as you've got that incredible habitat and it is up in Christmas Hills. And uh, yeah, I think it's generally, as I said earlier, I just garden without water. doesn't feel like it's living really, does it, Mm -hmm. Anne? No,
2: does it? Uh, I think is it eighty percent of insect species usually reside around water.
0: Oh it's goodness, that's a lot. Yeah, yeah. It's huge. but and there certainly are plenty of uh, predatory insect species as well, like uh, the dragonflies and and things like that, which they thrive around water and um, predate both their larvae and the and the adults uh, predate on what we would consider pest insects. Yeah, there's there's
2: a funny story we had a pond and we had too many frogs at one stage I don't know if there could be too many frogs in my (laughs) eyes but um, they did become quite loud uh, and the people's bedroom looks right under this pond and it's amazing how nature does balance itself when you say about predatory insects and and things that come in but we had and a lot of people might find this scary but it was it's it's quite beautiful but um, you get these water scorpions I don't know if people know what they are but they they basically look like a scorpion in the water. They're absolutely harmless. If you pick them up, they are not going to hurt you. They have two big pinches, and they actually hunt tadpoles. And they've got a little tiny stick on the end, and that's where they breathe air. And um, and when um, they go in, they're actually keeping the the plants, all the tadpoles down. So this is exactly how uh, predatory animals come in and just create a natural balance. When things start to tip out of balance basically.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I let's talk about frogs specifically em because I know there's um a bit of an issue going on with Aussie frogs and worldwide frogs for that matter. So, um do you want to talk us through a bit of what's happening?
2: Yeah, so we have a terrible virus going through called now it if I say the long way it's chytridiomycosis or the citrid virus, which is easier for us to pronounce. And it's a horrible virus that's going in and causing mass extinctions all over the globe. And it's here in Australia as well. And so it means, you know, even more, how are we going to create these you know, healthy systems to be yeah. able to protect some of these species? And there has been a bit of research going on um, in Melbourne University. There's a guy there doing research and there was a bit of investigation that, Uh, it seems more prevalent that this virus tends to be in, you know, pushed into these uh, forested areas. Because basically what I'm trying to say is that around, so like prime development areas, so where our houses are, you know, down in Melbourne, these systems used to be, you know, used to have wetlands running through them. And what happens is they get filled in and development happens and we have houses. And I understand that's, that's the, you know, how obviously the world progresses. But in some essence, it's a bad thing because we've ruined a lot of these biodiversity hotspots. And these wetlands used to be quite exposed to light. And what they've found is that when frogs uh, are subjected to more sunlight, the virus tends to be uh, like it goes away, mm-hmm. basically. So it must be like a vitamin D absor- absorption helps keep that virus at bay. And so now this is only my theory, is that, you know, because a lot of these wetland systems don't seem to exist out in the open anymore, they're pushed into these darker areas where maybe the uh, the health of the system is probably not as good. Um, it's been compromised somehow, but the water might be a bit more stagnant, there could be all these other factors, and it's causing... These uh, viruses to go gangbusters, and it's the same method all over the world because you know we always tend to build on these great areas where you know we all want to live, but we're actually destroying those ecosystems. So mm. that's why I was sort of saying. Like if you've got a, a large of land or you've got a backyard and it's quite exposed to sun, if you can incorporate a little pond or something, you know you could be contributing to helping you know these species um, that are you know becoming lost forever. And I have to remind that, you know, amphibians are one of the earliest um, species that could ever occupy the earth, you know, these are the animals that evolved from coming out of the water, these Mm. are very, very ancient creatures. It's very
0: sad that we're losing them. Yeah, and that fungus, I, I know it's a, uh, a a skin condition essentially which thickens the uh, frogs or amphibian skin and frogs, as, as we know, uh, b- do a bit of breathing through their skin and their skin is certainly extremely important and that essentially mm-hmm. causes them to suffocate to death, um, yeah. which is a bit horrendous. But um, Australian Museum have got an incredible um app which is the, the frog ID app and they're also um they've set up a an email that people can email in if they see um sick or dead frogs just because they're trying to get a broader picture across the country of, of what's going on with the frogs. Um so if anyone has come across a, a dead frog um or is a little bit more concerned, yeah by all means hop onto the Australian Museum uh frog ID app. Uh, which is, um, yeah, and, and, I mean, that's fantastic as well just for um, having – um, it it really breaks down what frogs are in your area, so you can you can go in, you can record a frog that you hear, and then submit that call. So again, um, researchers are developing a picture of what frogs are around the country, and yeah. um, and then they'll let you know if you were right and what you guessed it was, or they'll let you know exactly what it was. So it's a, a really fun app.
2: Yeah, it's great. I love it. Every time I have a client, I'm like, now download this. If they've got a little wetland, I'm like, download the frog idea. Yeah, yeah. And have you know, and start learning. And yeah, it's great. You can hear all the noises. Oh, it's good. It's really good. It's sort
1: of been coupled with the birds, isn't it? You know, if you've got birds and you've got your frogs and
0: it's, yeah, no. Yeah, I'm just you've gone a little bit quiet, Loretta. So I'm not sure yeah. what's happened there. Maybe um, you oh, moved away from your microphone. I think um but yeah that that's so true so m so you obviously use that app i do use that app. yeah it's fantastic yeah. and
2: you know you you'll go so i my mum's other family live in western australia and you know you go somewhere else and you can hear completely different noises than i was there i was like oh these frogs are out of this world i don't know <laughs> what these what are, are and this oh and this app is so good you know you just record it and then all of a sudden it comes with a list of what it suspects that, you know, what's in that area and what it could hear. And, um, oh, it's just great because then y- you're on this little, you know, you- you've got this little database you can start Googling and be like, what was that? So, yeah. And I, I, I,
0: I found a motorbike frog in Western Australia. Oh. And uh, <laughs> that's fine. My... <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. Hey, look, Um. so – um, listeners are starting to call in, which is fantastic. And Michael from Forest Hill is keen to set up a um, a pond with moving water. And he's just wondering what are the different ways to achieve this and maybe some of the easiest ways to put it in and, and something that's not terribly expensive. So is it possible to have moving water? And, and do we want to have moving water in the ponds? Do we have to
1: take this, Florida? Or... <laughs> oh, no, go for it then. Are, no, yeah,
2: it. okay. okay yeah. Um... Yeah, so moving water is absolutely possible. Uh, you, I for us, we always incorporate a um like a pump, a cycling pump system. So um, if, you, if you have these moving water, you you've you've got to create an area where it pools and has like quite a large body of water at the end of this system, and then create like a I guess sort of like a uh, flowing waterfall, or it could be like a trickling creek, and that pump will reticulate or cycle that water around as like a a system allowing that water to move and moving water is really good because the more oxygen in your water it it really helps keep the system very clean Mm -hmm. it's when systems kind of go stagnant that um, nutrient levels can enhance Um, if you're doing it cost effectively um, obviously doing it yourself is the best way Um, so Remember those uh, systems of shallow, medium, and deep. The same system applies with these. So have an end body of water that's going to be quite deep, but make sure, you know, there's ledges so you can plant around because you still need to incorporate plants. And obviously where this water is running, you're not going to get the same amount of plant life because the water can move them and disturb them quite a bit. So, you know, these plant species need to be in an area where the, the water's not hitting them all the time. If you do have a lot of flowing water and you do want to do a bit of planting, rush species are really good in those areas because they kind of hold it and they can tolerate a bit more of moving water. Um, And I guess it's always about your levels as well. So if you've got a naturally, um, a property or an area where you've got a little bit more of a rise, you know, you definitely would put that waterfall system there. So work in with your landscape and one thing that I did touch on always have an overflow as well so mm-hmm. make sure when that water is in there and you have like a crazy storm event which we've been having this year we've had a beautiful amount of water and rain um make sure you do have an overflow system so you don't have the catastrophe happening where it just yeah. floods and of and you know you could got,
1: yeah you've got in those um small inner city ponds you've got evaporation to consider also haven't you um and that sort of keeping those levels up is so important
2: yes and evaporation is like you know it naturally happens and using plants like that uh, running marsh flower and the nadu mutica which is like a rainbow nardu, they sit on the on the surface so they can you know stop the amount of evaporation happening as well so you can use plants to combat that as well
0: but yeah yeah and I should also note that we we don't have to have running water in a pond to keep it clean because what I ended up doing with my pond, which Loretta built for me, and um, I hadn't planted up and I think, M, you remember me um, moaning about how the algae was just – out of control all the time and and one one summer, one very, very hot summer, um, I think it was a week of 40 degrees plus, I decided I was going to tackle the pond and (laughs) emptied it out, cleaned it completely. It's actually a concrete pond. And um, I created different levels using, I brought in a lot of logs just to create habitat and laid them on top of each other. And then I draped um, shade cloth over top and then poured in about a metre and a half of scoria. And I found the scoria was absolutely fantastic it's light it's easy to move and um, if people can picture it it's that really um, hollow sort of volcanic small rocks and because it's so hollow has lots of little nooks and crannies there's um, lots of spaces for bacteria to hide and it's that bacteria Mm. which helps filter the water until the plants get going so I don't have any moving in my pond at all um, mm. or any systems for for moving the water around but it is perfectly clean and I now use that scoria in um, bird baths that are a bit too deep as well because mm. I put things in to stop um, animals drowning in it and the ones that I have scoria in are always clean yeah. so I don't need to clean them out at all and then I just take out my my um plant in its tube and plant directly into that scoria and it works a treat. Mm. Right. Yeah. And so Loretta, I know you've got one of the ponds that you have at your property. Um you've got water lilies in it and you've also um got this beautiful sculpture of the floating lady and oh, yes. now that that um moves water around, doesn't it? That's yeah, the lady of the lake is definitely a mover of water very very clever yeah and do you and, find uh, that because um, a lot of people say you can't have moving water when you when you're growing water lilies is that the case right. this
1: is it, it's actually very subtle you don't want any any hard running water you know um with, with your water lilies but this is just it has has a bowl so the lady of the sculpture is sitting in a bowl of um, water in, within the pond and it just just weeps i would say weeps because it's so gentle it weeps over the edge so and you know when you do see it (laughs) it's not it's not fast water at all but I think it's enough water that is just keeping that trickle of oxygenation going uh yeah so you know it and I I must say many many years ago I did a pond uh for some people in Warrandyte and they um they wanted running water and so I did that it was um right by the the front of the house right Mm -hmm. near the entrance and they um we got the water going and it went up reticulated over a rock had a beautiful piece made that was hidden under the rock for to hide all of those um nasty things like pipes and (laughs) here it sprinkled down into the water and it was just divine Mm -hmm. so about a week later i get a telephone call to say oh look i'm just ringing up about the water and you know it's it's lovely and everything. She said, but could you make um, the sound a bit quieter for me? <laughs> and it was sort of like, oh, you know, like it's disturbing me. It's near my bedroom. I'm sort of saying, turn the pump off and I don't have any
0: water. That's brilliant. It's frustrating. Find like the frogs. Yeah, <laughs> yes. well, that's so true, isn't it? You do want that's to create right. a bit of a buffer between uh, yourself and your frog zone uh, mm. just because they can be quite noisy at night. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So we have got another question. This is from George from Preston. Hi, George. Um, His lemon myrtle has been browning along the edges of the leaves. Uh, It's a two-year-old plant. Uh, So we're talking Bacchousia citriodora, which you guys would know well. Mm. Um, He's wondering, is it a fungal thing? It's in a west-facing sunny position. Is it a little bit of wet feet perhaps? Mm. Hmm. Yeah, it's hard to know. And I mean, I think the thing is, a lot of plants because they're living, they're going to have spots and things all over them. Mm. And just yeah, it's just a natural part of the ecology, really. Unless mm. it's really affecting the plant, it shouldn't shouldn't really be bothersome. But uh, yeah, it does certainly sound a bit like a fungal a fungal condition. Yeah.
2: It- and in the sun, it's not having any burning of the juvenile leaves or anything like that. I mean, it's not really hot yet, so that can't be it either. Yeah. I don't know. It it sounds like it has got a bit of wet feet, and I've seen that happening a lot in different places. Well, yeah, we have had so much rain,
1: haven't we? Yeah. Yeah,
2: yeah. And, so go on, Em. Oh, sorry. I was going to say, like, some properties even have, like, uh, water tables, which they haven't known that even existed. The water tables come up. And I've seen gardens completely sort of become really wet under their feet and you might not have seen this for years and all of a sudden you've lost all your plants How had it happen to one of the projects, which is crazy. Um,
1: Good idea to live on top of a hill. (laughs)
0: <laughs> so yeah George I think um, maybe give your plant a bit of a seaweed regime for a couple of months maybe uh, just apply that every two weeks just to maybe pep, pep it up a little bit um, hopefully coming into the warmer months it'll improve and um, in terms of what you can spray on it there there are various organic um, eco fungicides that you could spray on it if it continues to be a a problem. But personally, I would hold off and just see if it improves over summer. You can certainly remove um, the worst of the leaves and rake up underneath and just try and break that life cycle of any fungal spores that might be hanging around in the leaf litter. And uh, yeah, just a bit of um, pepping up the health of the plant, I suppose. Might so, be
2: worth having maybe even make a little bit of a hole just to see if there is a bit of water logging or anything too. Not obviously near the root zone, particularly close in case you do anything yeah. there, but yeah, that might be. Yeah, good could idea. eliminate one
0: of the possibilities. Yeah, yeah, for sure. All right, so now, M, this question actually, actually could be from you I think because I know you are moving you have bought a property and um, it's relatively large property and we were talking earlier that it's quite weed infested and um, Helen on the Ballerine Peninsula has got a similar situation she's um, got a really large gardens um, old farm they want to redo it but they're not sure where to start and there's lots of agapanthus and, and weeds and stuff and they, she wants a really natural sort of native habitat garden, wants to bring the birds in, et cetera, and would want to include water as well. Um, so they're obviously near the coast but not too close and um, she was just wondering if um, we could suggest any websites to look at um, where she might be able to get some inspiration and um, and it's a bit tricky at the moment because oh. <laughs> there's no open garden so you can't go along mm. to an open garden at the moment but um, yeah, where where do you start with that sort of situation?
2: Oh gosh, there's too many. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, where are you going <laughs> to start them? <I'm> like...
0: <laughs> and Loretta, I know you. Where you are when you first moved in there it was pretty weedy as well, and that was yeah. a, a historical type property, wasn't it? It was, and the
1: Agapanthus driveway is always so exciting. <laughs> um, it's 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 when you must have an excavator, I believe. Yep. So you um you, you remove those for a start, and I always go back to my policy of exotics hard to the house, natives a step out and your furthest boundary is going to be your indigenous. Mm-hmm. Um, this is, you know, that's a really good way to start looking at that property is that we, we know, we know, we want a fruit tree, a lemon tree, or this, that, the other. And I also, as I said earlier, I had um, some historical species. I had a Dracunculus vulgaire, I had some... Um, a canvas. I had a, a few different things like this, and it was really important to me to maintain that history, going back to you know a hundred years. Um, but of course, making sure that nothing is going to be an escapee into the bush. So that's that's I think a very simple way to start to look at it.
0: Yeah, and especially if, but- if you are close to the bush, Helen. Not sure where you are down there, but um, yeah, getting rid of those aggies. Which, you know, I am really on the fence with agapanthus because uh, I grew up in South Africa and everyone uses them there, and they're amazing. And I'm pretty sure they could grow on the moon perfectly well. Um, they're just so hardy, and of course they look amazing when they flower. But boy, they certainly cause a lot of environmental damage. They take over bushland, uh, very Via seed and via their um, bulbils, which spread rapidly, and um, they just hang on for a long time.
1: I was going to say, too, this is where um, I I think uh, the most simple thing with Agapanthus, and and I don't hate Agapanthus by any means, but um, it it, it is about where you live. So, the most simple thing in the whole wide world when you talk about spreading that seed is to cut those flower heads off. Mm. You know, before the birds and, and whatever else the wind takes them anywhere. And and that to me is the simplest of policies is to just get in there, have your beautiful flowers, love it, put them in the vase. I put them in the vase mm-hmm. and um, you know, start there because our birds are pretty good at spreading things. They sure mm.
0: are. I think, Helen, it's um I mean it's both a, a an exciting project for you and a I imagine quite a daunting project as well. But I think depending on how long you've been there, just get to know your property really well in terms of what the sun is doing at different times of the year. Uh, as M was talking about earlier, watch where your water's running through the property, that sort of thing. Get down on your hands and knees and fossick around in your soil and see what your soil's doing and maybe work out where you want some beds, what you want from your garden. Um the, yeah, I mean there's a number of fantastic garden design books out there. Um and of course websites. I know Fiona Brockhoff does a lot of uh, website design or web um sorry, a garden design for coastal gardens. Um There's she's... a great
1: book called um I, I saw it recently. It's called Habitat. <laughs> <love> it. Yeah, <laughs> that's the book. Have you know that one, Em? Yeah, I do know that one. I think it's Very a good starting point I would have to yeah. highly recommend it and there's no bias whatsoever
0: you <laughs> no know. none at all yeah well that is a yes that was the whole idea is um was to help people um work out where to start I suppose when you want to start inviting critters to the garden because yeah it can be a bit daunting um mm. but uh yeah so that that's my book habitat um but yeah also there's uh, Sandra McMahon has got some incredible gardens. Of course, um Em, you do as well. You've got a lot of your yep. projects up on your website. Um Loretta is very naughty, she still hasn't um got anything more than a a cover page for her <laughs> website. But yeah, trust me, she's got um <laughs> incredible gardens and um all over the place. So I think Helen it's a um it's going to be a long term beautiful project for you and i'm sure over time you'll just see a huge increase in birds and and other critters to the property Um, i will say hop onto your council website they i'm pretty sure down there they have a list of your indigenous plants so that's a really good place to start and just start to get to know your indigenous plants uh, when Karanga's um, back up and open um, to come and wander around, I mean we are. I, I work there uh, part time and we're open for click and collect and deliveries. But you know this time of year we really miss having our customers wander through because the place is looking so amazing. So when we do open up, please come up and um, I'm there on a Saturdays and and I can uh, talk you through a lot of plants that will work well for you in a coastal position. And quite oh.
1: inspirational, I've got to say, Karanga is
0: can't hear you again, Loretta.
1: Can't
0: hear you? No, I don't know what happened then. I'll just um, – Loretta gets –
2: I was going to say if um, she is on quite a larger property and she's having a bit of trouble with the weeds, scalping's a really good way to get rid of a lot of the weed layer. And like what Loretta said, an excavator is something that's – what you do need on these larger properties, but – Yeah, we have scalped soil away about um, 50 mil, sometimes to 100 mil, depending how bad the weeds are, and then planted back. This is more for, like, say, your indigenous and native areas that planted back a lot of the tube stock. Um, And say with areas that are extremely problematic and you're fringing on um, pasture land or farming, a geotextile weed matting can sometimes really help too because it breaks down, you know, after about a year or two, but it really suppresses, some of the weeds that are coming in but we have found that scalping is a a a good way especially on those outer areas of the farm areas and you can you know get some tube stock in if you want the trees and that um that's something that's a good tip that has really been quite successful in a lot of our projects
0: Mm, so not the uh plastic weed matting obviously this is one that actually breaks down yeah
2: it's a Geotextile, really, it really breaks down really nicely. It's um, I think it's made of a coconut fiber, mm-hmm. um, and um, yeah, no problem at all. Uh, it does break down like quite, you know, if been a wet year, this one broke down within a year, um, but it's still there and it's still creating a bit of a buffer for all that uh, pasture grass and things like that. But um, it's it's done really well, yeah, and especially where the areas where you haven't used it and you're like, oh, a bit of weeding to do here now. No matter what, you'll always have maintenance to do on these landscapes to sort of help, um, you know, get rid of those weeds, you're always going to have to, you know, do a little bit of work that way and, and remove them. Um, that, that never stops.
0: Yeah, but and sometimes it, councils yeah. even um, provide support for you to bring in um, contractors to do weeding. Uh, I know the Nillimbic Council, uh, where I am, they provided that support to us and um, we had um, a Narrup Rangers Ranges team come and do a whole lot of weeding for us and uh, removing some agapanthers that had spread into the bush and some lilies. And it's interesting because I recently went on a bit of a, Um, agapanthus hunt through the bush just to see if I could spot any small ones and the guys where they had uh, weeded the aggies out they'd weeded out the whole bulb of course and hung them up in the in the trees and (laughs) essentially to dry out but they were actually regrowing and we're talking two years later and they were sending out all these aerial roots so it was just quite amazing so um yeah aggies are, are certainly pretty pretty tough
2: we had a client that burnt them and they came back to life. Oh, no. <laughs> and Frankenstein. They you don't, they smell, you burn, it's horrible, yeah. They yeah. came back
0: from the ashes. <laughs> yeah, sure. Look, I should remind listeners yet that you're listening to the 3CR Gardening Show. Uh, we are live here um, on Sunday, the 26th of September. And with me via Zoom are Loretta Childs and Emmeline Bowman. We're talking landscapes, landscape design. We'll probably soon move on to plants. Um, but first of all, Mary in Brunswick. Hi, Mary. Um, has got an apple tree that has sent up a large sucker, and she's wondering how she can successfully remove it. Um, and also, can she use shredded newspaper to supplement in with her mulch? Um, so, any tips on the apple tree oh, suckering, the apple guys?
1: Tree just gets down and... Oh, okay. I don't know what's going on here. Mm. I haven't even
0: moved. Oh, that's weird. Um, maybe, yeah, if you come a little bit closer to your mic. Any uh, recommendations from you, Em, regarding the using the newspaper in with the mulch?
2: Yeah, newspaper and cardboard is amazing. It's really, I, I think that's a a bloody top way to um, suppress weeds. Mm-hmm. It's again, it breaks down. Um, it really helps. It smothers them out and um, yeah, you're not contributing any plastics to the earth. And so um, all for it, do that. Yeah, um, And the worms love it. Cycle. The worms love it. It it also brings up a lot of um, microactivity and microbial activity and um, yeah, I, can't stress how good it is so if everyone wants to go that way as well just to get rid of the weeds it's a, a really good way um is Loretta back oh, okay.
0: on yes yeah, she's back
2: oh yeah Loretta's good
0: <laughs> you there
2: she's... oh no she can't um I, I kind of want Loretta to talk about the apple tree because um I know that we've got an orchard and um some of the trees have gone through a bit of stress And when that happens, um, a lot of these plants are grafted onto another species. And when that happens, the, the suckering from the base of that tree means that it's the original plant coming through, either it's stronger, um, or the, the, the tree on top is, um, struggling a little bit. So it's that extra growth. Um, and I would love to know Loretta, because, um, I've chopped them away to sort of give a little bit more, um, energy towards the tree itself that I've originally purchased, but, um, sometimes the whole base of it can end up you know sprouting and I just I've just been cutting and cutting and cutting and and what's your and I thought that was the only way I can keep that plant going are you there Loretta? Loretta
0: are you there? nope she has disappeared um yeah so in in terms of the suckering it can be really tricky and of course there's a lot of other um ornamental plants such as the robinia which are very suckering type plants and mm-hmm. um I, I I know that people have a lot of trouble dealing with that because you want to cut it away but then it can just come back again. You don't really want to poison it because it's going to send poison up into the into the main part of the tree. But uh yeah, as you say, Em, it does depend on if it's a um a root stock um sucker or if it's part of the main tree. It's um yeah, it's it's a tricky situation that one.
2: Yeah, I just continuously um, prune off the suckers yep and um in one of the trees it worked well it, i didn't have any problems and then another one uh it must have had a lot of trauma and the trees continuously suckered and i'm i'm thinking like that you know that the original rootstock is just coming through and it's very hard to control because it's just prolific yeah but the other one it actually worked if you've only got one sucker keep on top of it and it might just draw that energy back into the tree. Into the main part of That's the tree, down. yeah, for sure, yeah, for yep.
0: sure. So with your um, new property, when do you move and do you have a, a plan? Uh Yeah, so I'm uh,
2: moving in on the 10th of it's December so and, um yeah, moving on the 10th of December and um, there's a lot of ivy and things growing on the tree, so I'm going to have to get into there because like we were talking a bit before very careful in what we choose as species of plants around the property i i, I always call this responsible gardening mm-hmm. so just just making sure that the plants that i purchase um whether they're native or exotic you know that they they're not something that can become sort of wild in the sense that it can just go off you know very cautious about you know how that can impact around surrounding environment and um yeah, so, like, you know, with the agapanthus, like, they can spread. They're, they're, they're abducted. They're an amazing plants. So, yeah, a lot of uh, weed removal of agapanthus, ivy. And I'll be careful with the blackberry bushes because I do, I, I find them, like, yes, they are bad. But at the same time, they do provide slight habitat for smaller bird species as well, especially if the area has been um, destroyed quite a bit. And the smaller bird species use this as habitat um, and protection from obviously introduced species like cats and foxes. And, um, you know, if you go to Tassie there, I don't know why they don't get rid of any of their blackberries, but you can see that the bird life are really surviving within those thickets. But when I say all this is it's because when I do the weeding, it'll be a staged effect Mm. because I don't want to remove all that habitat. Because then, you know, you're, you're causing a bit of a disruption, you're taking away homes of these animals. So do it gradually. And plant a little bit back, and do it gradually. Plant a little bit back, and yeah.
0: then what you do. Is get, uh, and I guess you back. also have to get, um, you have to be there um, for yeah. a season, really, to to work out um, what what's going on. If there's any indigenous stuff that's yeah. going to come through later on, and um, yeah, and, and so have you been mm-hmm. through yet and yeah. done a yeah. done a sort of assessment of what's there. Yeah,
2: I well because of COVID, we haven't really been I, able yeah, to. Um, I've taken them off. Visit the
0: so. property,
2: and um yeah. <laughs> well, Loretta's yeah.
0: having a bit of trouble. I think. Yeah, but, um, sorry, Loretta. Yeah. We can actually hear you if you can. If you can hear yeah. us, we can hear you talking. Yeah. She's trying to work out. No, she can't. Um, this
2: is the uh, the yeah. glory of um, us working from home. Off the, from our, we don't have any IT or technical support.
0: Um, well. well <laughs> um, but I'll try to select a microphone Loretta. when I
2: come on oh, no. Apple. Um, yeah. <laughs> sorry. Yeah, sorry about that, Loretta. <laughs> it, it's the funny thing. Um, but no, um, uh, on the property, yeah, we haven't been able to visit the site because um, obviously because of COVID, we haven't been able to visit. But on the first time I went crazy, I took as many photos as I can. And it's really true. When you, when you move into your new property or, you know, maybe you're just starting to do a garden, you've lived in your property for quite a while, You might reflect on the seasons and and how that has has worked for you over the years. When you do that, um, you're able to establish, oh, okay, you know, for, for a couple of years it was really, really dry and now I've had a really wet season. So you're really understanding all your environmental conditions. You might find that there's an area where you get a lot of really lovely sunlight and, you know, you could potentially put your vegetable garden there or something like that. It's about assessing your environment and how it works over the years. Have you got too much wind? Do you not, you know? That's the thing. Sometimes we have clients who just bought a property and they've only lived there for six months. And that can be a bit problematic because, you know, if if I come in, I'm, I'm only going there on the site visits that I see. And I do rely on a bit of the information the clients do say as well, because, you know, you don't know all the environmental conditions. So I ask them, you know, what have you seen while you've lived on this property and from there you can sort of create a bit of a groundwork of what the design you're going to create and as your garden if you do implement a garden you'll find that that changes as well over the years as well it'll fluctuate it'll change you'll add a bit more to it and yeah I guess it's just a working progress and I think that's one of the loveliest things about having a garden is the knowledge that you gain and yeah I guess that curiosity and exploration
0: yeah and the journey that you go on and I think it doesn't matter if it doesn't matter how big or small the garden is there's a particular journey that you go on and gardens are forever evolving and so you're going to be bringing new plants in and other plants are going to be senescing so microclimates are going to be changing so there's there's a lot going on with any garden
2: yeah, and I, I love it. I, I think that that's probably my favourite part is, you know, when the garden is established for a bit more than like a year or two and then you start seeing the changes or you start introducing little things because you you kind of already enhance the soil culture when you add these plants in too. So it's easy to bring plants in. So you, you find like, like when you've got a fresh new garden, you know, you might have 10% of these plants not usually go right through. And, and, you know, that's, that's just because you've got this sort of barren environment that once you give it a year or two, that biodiversity kicks up and mm. you can put some more things in and, oh, oh that's my favourite.
0: Yeah, yeah really absolutely, is. when yeah. you start getting on top of things. Now, Loretta, I can see you. Can you hear me? I can hear you. Can Woohoo. you? Hear me? She's, She's back. back. <laughs> All right. Now, look. One of the favourite parts of the show is uh, talking about plants, and I mentioned to Loretta and M, um, get a list of plants ready. Usually, we'd bring them into the studio and we'd run around madly in the morning before we come in, um, collecting plants. But we don't have to do that. But we have sent photos through to Liz, who's um, going to be putting them up on Instagram and, and Facebook if she hasn't already. And um, and I have to say, Loretta, you. You certainly win the award for um, talking about the most plants. So we're going to dedicate literally no. the rest of the show to your plants. <laughs> no, I'm just you know, joshing. And- <laughs>
1: you, know, you get pretty excited, and I was very excited as I started to wander around on this beautiful spring day and uh, click, click, yeah, clicking them. <laughs> I thought, hey what do i delete <laughs> well let,
0: let's talk about your wisteria um first because that way we can also talk about how you manage it and how you prune it because wisterias, as we know can tend to take over a little bit mm-hmm. yes so what do, what have do. you got and and how do you manage it well the wisteria um
1: i've never managed because you know <laughs> never have quite enough time um but I have two two that I bought many years ago in the Kiwa Valley, perhaps fifteen years ago, uh, and uh, which is north north of Melbourne there. So it's um, it's a well, normal wisteria oh, wisteria. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, um, that is it's a white one. Mm-hmm. It's called now uh, it's called Ganea, but the Ganea that I know is pink, more pink. Uh, so. I um I, it is a lovely white, beautiful racings and it has one end it has um really, really thrived and the other end of the house not as much. And I believe it's the tea leaves and the coffee grounds at the end where it's thriving because that's and, and let's face it, just water. Uh mm. and the other end it's still thriving because it's a wisteria, but um
0: Okay, yeah. so so how much uh tea leaves and coffee grounds do you put on? Well, pretty daily. I mean, (laughs) it's a bit. Uh, And that one particularly, it's gone
1: up under the house. And, I mean, you do have to be careful. It it goes and goes and goes. Mm. Uh, Fortunately, our building, our home is very sturdy, uh, which is something you also really need with a wisteria. Don't don't put it on anything too wimpy because Mm. it's going to destroy it pretty much. Mm. Um, So the other end, it's flowering beautifully. Um, this year we haven't had a really good flowering for a couple of years. Last year it seemed that the uh, the foliage took over far more than the the flower. Whereas this year I've got a really classic wisteria mm-hmm. uh, display. It's fabulous. So-, so
0: usually does the do the flowers come out before the foliage? Uh, you do – what you're, you actually get is
1: the budding. So the budding really, really takes hold. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got lots of buds. It's looking all um, all bud and as it's starting to burst, those little green leaves start to come on then. So uh, that's sort of been the habit of mine anyway.
0: Yeah, and, um, and it, do you have a pruning open. regime or you just let it do its thing? Uh,
1: I – What what you need to do all year round in in the summer, let's say, you just have to take off those tendrils that are sort of coming, that really young, well, we can't walk across our veranda because we get (laughs) whacked in the face of them. (laughs) Uh, Tammy, she's constantly telling me to cut them back uh, and and try and cut them in, you can cut them twice a year. You can cut them after they're flowering and then you can cut them again in autumn mm -hmm. and that's sort of really all I do but, I mean, they're, there's some really good people who can come and do a great cut on your wisteria for flowering specifically.
0: Oh, really? There's oh, experts who do that?
1: There are experts and they tend to be Japanese. Yeah. Um, okay. They really do know their stuff. So fantastic thing to do if you really want that display. But I, I just want the green cover. I call it my my summer blanket, which might sound <laughs> really strange, but it's a summer blanket because it gives you that cooling and as you know, AB, I have sort of, it's so dense in the summer mm. that we, I have to consistently cut pockets so I can see out of it. The- <laughs> <Help me. laughs> so you I can, can see, see that view. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, that's, that's the wisteria. Yeah,
0: mm. be- and beautiful it is too. I was admiring it when I drove past yesterday after work. Yeah. Very yeah. nice. One of the plants that I, I want to talk about um, is one that I sent through to Liz. And um the The reason I want to talk about it is because I'm growing it in a hanging basket. It's uh, um, the Pandorea pandorana, or as Loretta likes to call it, Pandoria. <laughs> We, do, we have a very, very robust conversations about how to pronounce plants. Um, so Loretta's, Loretta's version is Pandoria, and mine is Pandorea, and um, it's it's the indigenous one. And If anyone can be bothered Googling uh, the distribution of Pandorea, it's really quite bizarre because it goes from far north Queensland the entire way down the east coast, sort of um, mostly on the east of the Great Dividing Range, but I think it also by the look of the map it actually looks like it pops over the other side a bit as well and then just a great big splodge right in the middle of central Australia which I just found completely bizarre. Uh, Mm -hmm. They do tend to like the sort of moister semi-shaded woodlands where where they grow naturally but yeah not um, maybe not in the centre of Australia which I found very interesting. Mm -hmm. But yeah mine's in a it's in a large hanging basket and Um, sort of trailing over and growing up a little bit as well and currently um, in flower they they come in various flower color forms there's the white or there's cream with a purple throat Um, and there's also a gold variety and I, I just find them absolutely beautiful they're Um, Mm. flowering in the bush at the moment and really good source of nectar for insects and birds. And they create a really strong sort of thickety vine. Um, Again, maybe not quite as voracious as a wisteria, but they can certainly get up 20 metres. So if you've got a Mm. a, a dead tree that you want to grow something up just to um, provide a bit more habitat, um, Mm. yeah, the the pandaria is uh, certainly one of those. Is I've
1: that never... um, gangura? Kangura is the Wonga Wongavan, or kangura is is your indigenous? Is that golden golden showers, isn't it?
0: Yeah, 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 for sure. So you've got the golden one, haven't you? I I have two. Yeah,
1: okay. I've got that golden one, and I've got the other one that's the the bells.
0: Oh, the ruby the bells. That's bells. right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And and you were mentioning that yours got hit by the frost a little bit.
1: No, no, no. Oh. No, no. Actually, that's interesting because the one that got hit by the frost was at Hurst Bridge. Oh, okay. And uh, mm. it got hit by frost that I two years running and the second year I thought, no, it's going to be fine. And believe it or not, it was hit so hard, completely defoliated.
0: That's mm. weird because they usually can cope with frost.
1: Mm. Yeah. The frosts have been
2: bad lately though, very bad.
1: And a really healthy plant in a good spot, well mm. well supported. Um, I was yeah quite shocked and, and incredibly disappointed because it was in first bridge. It was um, screening the neighbours, so now we can see the neighbours. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> that all well, that's uh, that's a different story altogether you have to plant yes. something quick growing uh look i should remind listeners you're listening to the 3cr gardening show i'm ab bishop and i'm chatting with uh, emmeline bowman and loretta charles both landscapers and we're sort of about to move into a whole um chat about lots and lots of different plants but if you would like to ring in with a question uh which we can't uh, we can't have you going live to air but we can certainly answer your questions uh so feel free to give Liz a call on 9419 0155 or you can text us on 0488 809 So if you want to join in with the conversation, um, please feel free. So Loretta, let's get to another one of your plants. Oh, let's talk about the Tamasia. Mm. Mm. Yes,
1: I have two of them, mm-hmm. and uh, both extremely different. Uh, the Tamacea pygmaea, pygmaea um, is a beautiful, beautiful pink one, little tiny sort of prostrate It's ground cover almost, mm-hmm. and uh, it is, it's just been the most stunning thing. And those flowers are delightful. They are on, I think, you can see them on the thing. What's that thing called? Instagram. <laughs> yeah, <that's> it. <laughs> and, um, so yeah. it is just a beautiful, most delightful thing, and I would recommend it for all those beautiful little pockets in amongst rocks and and, uh, and the like. It's just divine. The cope uh, with dry conditions. Yes, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Good drainage, yeah. dry conditions. It's it's really really hardy. Little tiny leaf, a little bit furry, mm-hmm. um, and and dark green, but. Uh, it, it is just a stunner. A, as is, I must say, the Tamazia quercifolia is absolutely another stunner. It's, it's a medium-sized shrub, which I think medium-sized shrubs are wonderful because they're fillers. Mm. And those fillers are so important in creating the stories in our, in our gardens at different height. Uh, so this is uh, the quercifolia is saying it's an oak leaf. Mm-hmm. shape leaf mm-hmm. and it's quite furry as well beautiful mid-green uh once again like the um uh, the little pink one beautiful little white flowers
0: mm-hmm.
1: and uh, it, you know i'd almost sort of think about it as being a uh, a native hydrangea mm.
2: you yeah, know mm-hmm. it, it's
1: got that sort of look so
2: do you know that one Ed? I have seen it and I've never used it and I remember looking at it once going oh I have to put that in the garden and I've completely forgotten you've reignited that because I was like oh and now that I know that you're saying it grows that well because yep. that's another thing like obviously when you use plants you want to know or trial it yourself yes. and so you can understand exactly how it works yes, yes so like hearing this I'm like oh what an amazing plant yeah and it's it's- like the the the, the- Quite one. That
1: it's tough, you know. Yeah. Um, I have planted three of them that I, I probably haven't watered in five years. Mm. You know, <laughs> That's what hear. you want to hear. Yep. Just, and that's what you want to hear, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly.
0: I oh. know oh, at the nursery they are just flowering their little heads off at the moment, mm. mostly the pinks, and some of them are really deep pink. And I know the the one at your place, Loretta, it's um, so floriferous. It's just yes. absolutely covered in flowers, and I've loved how you've used it to sort of create a bit of a almost like a, a sense of mystery as to what's beyond it. So if you want to explore the rest of the garden, you have to walk around the path. You can't see straight through it. It's quite dense.
1: Yeah. yeah oh you've got to use it in it's a stun. yeah
0: oh you have to put some aside
2: from the ab <laughs> for when, sure. when it's all opened <laughs> for, up i'm karenga's sure. only 10 15 minutes from my house i'm gonna go broke yeah, <laughs> well wait wait because oh, i mean when i get my hot house going my out, <laughs>
0: yep Cuttings all round. Oh, oh, gosh. Cuttings all round. best friend. Oh, yeah. Hey, one of the plants I'm loving at the moment, um, and I've got it in a pot, so I'm I'm trying to create a garden where I don't only plant in the bush because the bush is quite close to our house, so I certainly plant indigenous in that space, um, but I'm still trying to bring a bit of a design element into it. And um, in the pots that I've got around the house, I'm using a lot of indigenous plants. Uh, just to prove that you can have a fabulous garden of any style at all using indigenous plants. And one of the ones I'm really loving is the um, dwarf version of the Goodenia Vata called Little Goody. Mm. Mm-hmm. And if people know the, the Hop Godinia, the traditional bush, which gets to approximately maybe just under two metres, um, has a really bright green serrated foliage. Um, and that real bright green is fantastic to have in the garden because there's, I mean, let's face it, there's not heaps and heaps of native plants that have that really bright green foliage. And um, gorgeous yellow flowers, really sunny yellow flowers um, held on the ends of the branches, which the butterflies go absolutely nuts for. And this particular one I've got Little Goody. It's really dense, uh, gets to sort of around 50, maybe 70 centimetres, maybe a little bit more if you plant it in the ground. Um, Perfect for a small pot. I've got it in a pot that's only about 30 odd centimetres diameter and um, I've got it in a spot where it's dappled shade, does get a bit of a hit of the afternoon sun um, and it's a relatively upright plant, so quite contained. Mm. So unlike the original, the the traditional Goodenia vata, Hop Goodenia, which can get a bit scraggly, and you have to hack it back hard to rejuvenate it. This little goodie is just—it's perfectly shaped. I haven't had to it do anything. Goodie. It is a, a goodie. It's a little goodie. <laughs> it is a little goodie. Yeah. So <laughs> very happy with that. And then of course there's the the ground cover version as well, mm. um, like gold cover, which uh, you know isn't that amazing when you think about it one plant and it's got all these different useful forms
1: yes yeah I I did an embankment about 15 16 years ago and uh, probably one of the most incredible inclines I've ever been on to the point where you know my calves ate for weeks (laughs) Um, but we we did shoe stock along that and within two years it was solid Mm -hmm. with, with that gold cover it was just I mean we didn't only do that Species, um, but it was fantastic. Yeah,
0: yeah. And is, is that one that you've had to hack back, or did has it just? continue this to one this
1: one's so beautiful and prostrate it just stays flat too and, and you know here it is the geotextile fabric again M, you know holding yes. that and cutting mm. those holes in there and going for it and then it breaks down and you know that breaking down of that fiber too is also adding to that profile there that soil mm. profile everything it all integrates and i think that's so important to remember particularly on those incredibly steep inclines
2: mm. I was just going to ask a question. So um, we've got a property where we've used that and it's incredible. And I haven't had any kangaroos eat it. And um, I'm wondering, have you ever, because no. you have kangaroos on your property, have you found the roos have nibbled them as well
0: or well, not? We actually, we rarely have roos just because we're right okay. in the bush, but we have wallabies and mm-hmm. um Specifically, a mummy wallaby, and mm-hmm. she trials everything. But you absolutely spot on. She okay. has not trialed the gardenia either—the one in the pot or the um, or the traditional one. So that yeah, that's
2: interesting. That's good to know because yeah, this property the kangaroos love to have a bit of a munch, and I've noticed they don't ever touch the gardenia. I'm like, is this just a fluke, or is this yeah. happening? I'm yeah. like, oh, I found a it. kangaroo yeah. one
1: could also be um because i don't particularly think i've found
0: that the rabbits have been that interested either
2: yeah and they have rabbits too. They have rabbits, haven't touched yeah. it either. Yeah. yeah. Another, so that's really good to know.
0: Yeah. And em, also um, an, a plant that I've been using quite a lot lately is the um, kangaroo apple, uh, the Solanum mm. lacinatum, I think it is. Yeah. And I've created a bit of a grove. So I planted seven of them and they are a, um, a species which comes up extremely quickly. And, um, oh, goodness, they, they grew fast. But un, I've underplanted it with uh, Coria, Coria glabra and mm-hmm. the small shrub form of Hardenbergia violacea. So that I think i end up using, no, not mini ha-ha. What's the other one? Not regent. Uh, there's Happy an, wonder? No, no that's, uh, that's, anyway. That's the normal. Yeah, yeah. one of the, the shrub forms of the Hardenbergia. So I'm creating these different levels. Um, where I planted this grove, it was originally always weed infested especially this time of year there were the stinging nettles coming up and then through summer it was extremely hot and exposed and it's completely changed that microclimate and I found that Um, critters aren't eating the plants underneath it as well Um, and certainly no one eats plants in the Solanaceae family of which the kangaroo apple is one of so um, Mm. they were able to establish really well so that's something that you could consider for your property uh, just to get that shade onto the ground and to change the microclimate a bit and and get a bit of super fast greenery happening.
2: That's really good to know. I also know with the kangaroo apple that you can put the the leaves all in like water because it is got those like you know poisonous sort of alkaloids in it and you can put it in water leave it in for like a day or two and that's on the on the spray and you can put it on first pest species of bugs
0: oh that's good to know yeah. and i wonder mm. if you could also spray it on plants to deter animals eating the other ones who knows? Who knows? It always, my, yeah. This is the fun bit you can
2: trial. And I don't
0: need to do fire. that anymore because we've got oh. rid of all of our rabbits. Oh, oh did you? Marty
2: yeah. pants. Marty pants. The
1: you're science show here. now, you
0: know, science show. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. So have you guys been allowed to uh, work, um, be, being that you're both landscapers, have you been allowed to work through COVID? Yes, I have.
1: Yep. Um, yeah, it's not been a problem Um Sort of people not being home is really important mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, and we we our sites are all all um domestic
0: mm-hmm.
1: stage. Yeah. so we did have a um a commercial site last year, which we also did work through, but we didn't have the delta virus, of course then um, mm-hmm. and it was a site where uh, we well we were outside and we kept our distance and we did all the right
2: things. Mm. yeah. And we've been working on sites where residents don't live on the property and that's been really good Um, obviously been doing all the right things and um, obviously when we do our design work that has been done separately everyone's at home it has been a bit challenging because you sort of these zoom calls all the time like oh you know um, you sort of do a bit of work and i guess with design a lot of it's having a bit of a chat you know with your colleagues um you know you could be in your own head for so long and be like i don't even know what i'm if this looks good anymore what am i doing yeah so you need to talk to someone i have missed that side so you tend to get onto these zoom meetings which technology is really good but at the same time it's quite disruptive as well because you yes. tend to spend so much time and you're always on that computer and you prefer to be out in the garden i'm well i'm definitely like that but, um, yeah. yeah we've been so lucky that we've been able to work unlike many people and um and to be able to get outside that's
0: been lovely Mm. So, yeah yeah for sure and em do you go back and visit your large habitat projects
2: yeah i try and visit as much as i can but obviously things just your know, time is there's never enough time but um yeah so then hasn't really well, i've only been operating for four years so mm-hmm. you know it's really nice now to sort of go back um after like a year or two and see how quickly things have changed and oh man i'm learning all the time i now know that i would probably use poa over, every, or poa and femida and ostracipha's grasses over um, lamandra mm-hmm. so much now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> i never used that as much anymore. There's just things that you're learning all the time. Yeah. And it's so important to visit properties and see what's going on because yeah. it's also a treat because you get to see the change and, and what you've done and how it's growing
1: mm-hmm. and
2: what's moved in. So Yeah, I was going to say
1: so good. important there is the fact that um, I, I, I can go around my garden, I'll go to numerous gardens and I'll say, okay, I've planted that area five times. You know, mm-hmm. it's that simple. I've planted it five times and it's been the rabbits, it's been the roos, it's been whatever mm-hmm. it might be, it might be the climate. But it's it's just working with, this is what I think portraying to clients is so important. It's vital that they understand that I can plant two species of whatever it might be or three or four and three will live beautifully and two will die
0: Mm.
1: and and these things are so important to know and to understand for our clients as well as ourselves
2: it really is and i've been very i'm always very transparent in that aspect too because you know when you do design you want everything to be absolutely perfect because you want to deliver the best outcome for your clients Mm. um but you do know that you know Obviously, especially with larger environments, there is more things to happen. For example, just exposure, exposure to rabbits and kangaroos mm. um, and, and, and just the elements mm. themselves. When you're in closed environments in residential gardens, they're a lot less um, problematic because the environment is controlled and, and all those factors are reduced it, um, yeah. yeah, and you really need to say that's why it's quite important to do staged planting um, as well, which I find is um a lot better. Get those first plants like your, your grasses and the shrubs like couriers and all those sort of things in and mm. they establish that framework and then put the specky stuff in the year after. Mm. That's how I kind of work it. I think that works mm. really well.
1: And and you know, adding to that is of course succession planting. And yeah. that's been so important and, and the years over the last forty odd years knowing that, okay, you know, some of our natives are not going to have that longevity. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think this is really important to know so that we're, we're going to sort of go, all right, I'm doing quite a lot of succession planting at the moment and uh, I'm seeing and hoping that, yeah, that's going to be fabulous in five years, in ten years. Um, yeah.
0: What do, what are enough. you finding is sort of senescing at this point for you?
1: Yeah. Mm. Um, well, I think some of the um, acacias, mm-hmm. which I think are probably the most classic because, you you know, you'll get that 15-year sort of cycle and, and then they start to sort of really look a bit average. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, with stringias, once again, uh, your cognatas. Um, and I think that one of the things we can really do, and with the grevilleas, is to really think about that pruning mm-hmm. early on. Because yep. that is really does extend the life, I believe, yep. of, of those species.
0: And you've yeah. hacked quite a few plants back that maybe it was a bit of an experiment. I know with the, uh, was it the Coria Coliban um, River? Flabra. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, Coliban River and uh, it, we got quite a shocking fungus a number of years ago a sort of a sooty mold and uh, they grayed off and they'd been really really very good for about 10 years and so you're talking about something about 1200 high um, by at least 1200 in diameter mm. uh, and I just thought all right well look I've got quite a few here I'm just going to Cut it to the stump and I cut it to the stump, and the stump was about 100 mil in diameter.
0: Um,
1: <laughs> and I, about a month later, I'm seeing all this green, and the entire yeah. coria rejuvenated mm, and became yeah. a whole new plant. It's incredible without sooty yeah. mold. Without sooty mold, and lush and gorgeous and beautiful.
0: Yeah. yeah, I want to continue this conversation. I should just uh, remind listeners that uh, you're listening to the 3CR Gardening Show. I'm A.B. Bishop and I'm chatting with landscape designers Emmeline Bowman and Loretta Childs. If you would like to join the conversation um, via a question or a comment, we'd love to hear from you. You can call us on nine four one nine zero one double five, or you can text through on double. 809 855 Um, And Loretta tell us the story of your macadamia Oh the macadamia,
1: gee whiz (laughs) Um, Well the macadamia I planted perhaps, um, I don't know 12 years ago, 13 Mm -hmm. years ago and it struggled for a number of years, so we're talking just a four inch pot um, lovely little shrub, pretty healthy, it grew and grew and grew to about a metre or more and then I also planted Acacia cognata, mini cog, around the perimeter of that bed, and they grew and, and were thriving. Eventually I, um, they were getting really tatty and the macadamia was not doing a lot, so I took them all out. Um, I'm quite happy to take things out, and uh, the macadamia took off. So at this huh. stage it is now probably about nearly three metres in height. Um, by about three metres in diameter, and it is absolutely laden with macadamia nuts, and I noticed yesterday, A.B., that it's starting to flower again. Oh, well, that's really. So I've got, to, I've got to harvest these bloody macadamias, <laughs> <laughs> which I've waited all these years for, and it's it's, it's integrifolia. It's, um, it's a fabulous, uh, fabulous green, beautiful-shaped tree. Mm-hmm yeah really
0: is. that that's a good yeah. success story. it obviously thanked you by producing abundant nuts
1: yes, mm. it really did fabulous yeah. thing fabulous tree and and I'm talking to me it could be a centerpiece in any garden mm. you yeah. know mm. in the city because it's a it's something you can contain uh quite well and uh it's it's a specimen
0: mm and you have it in a position that's um there's a bit of shade going on isn't there
1: shade from the yeah. building near it um and uh yeah dappled dappled shade mm. uh a bit of afternoon sun but not um afternoons it, it now it, it bushes out to a point where you don't actually uh the the ground below it is completely um shaded mm-hmm. so I think that certainly is a great positive it's very bushy
0: yeah and will yeah. you underplant it with anything else I already mm. have, oh. um, but I've just put in some beautiful
1: little white prostrate um uh, oh yes, okay, oh, yeah. so I don't see they're going to be a problem, and a couple of um uh, what we, acacia Hawitii, mm-hmm. Um mm-hmm. green wave mm-hmm. so. Okay
0: they should be good yeah Mm. very nice um all right well why don't we get to um some more plants let's get some plant happening plant talk happening what about your echium loretta
1: um the echium pride of madeira very beautiful just just poking its head through the the gates into uh the deck there and it's just such it's the very very deep purple Like it's dark, it's as dark as it gets and it's just a glorious thing. But um, once again, it's hard against the house, Mm -hmm. which is Mm -hmm. so important um, because it will, I mean, those flower heads, we're talking seed heads. Mm -hmm. It's it's incredible. So you just cannot have that um, anywhere else. It's just got to stay really hard to the house. They're just prolific. Mm. And do you Mm -hmm. hack
0: that back? Because it just always seems to look beautiful.
1: Yeah, I, I cut it back because you know I love pruning. Uh-huh. So I just cut it back hard every year. Uh, very nice, very nice plant, but uh, probably not not um, a patch on the the uh, atriplex by the pool.
0: Oh yes, yes, um, the, that, and it's in flower. That that it really is taking over that plant. It is.
1: Yes, you can't actually walk around the pool anymore, Em, because. We have a huge atriplex right in the way. <laughs> it will, it, and it falls
0: into the water. Oh, wow. Yeah, And that's scenario, yeah. isn't
1: it? Yes, it is. Yes. It is indeed. So, so
0: one of the salt bushes.
1: Yeah. yeah. Just and proving how tough it crazy. is. Yeah.
0: You can prune that pretty well too,
1: yeah? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I am about to hack it before summer. Oh, I- we do actually need to walk around the pool. It's yeah. quite important. But um, I, it was one plant that I put in about 15, 16 years ago, and um, it has never looked back. It just goes <laughs> and goes. But it's just terrific. I found a mm. little
2: kindness in an actual place once. Oh, little, beautiful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. nice and
0: thick. Animals to seem to find you, Em. Oh, I think I'm looking for them. <laughs> <laughs> look, look, here ma- comes Em. <laughs> yeah, here she comes. Here comes that crazy fauna lady. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Now, Mary from Brunswick is um, just uh, requiring a a little bit of a follow-up on the shredded newspaper uh, to use as a mulch. She's concerned that it may um, form a bit of a barrier to water getting through uh, to the soil. So um, what do you you guys reckon? I
1: believe you you do need to saturate it. But, Mm. I mean, are you going to put some mulch on top of that?
0: I I think she is. I I think she was Mm. considering shredding it and mixing it with the mulch, whereas I'd be inclined to, as you say, put it down. You can even put a few layers at once and um, wet it down and pop the mulch on top of that and it'll Um, be fine. As soon as
1: you – I I would say four layers – of newspaper for mm-hmm. starters because otherwise i think you're wasting your time yeah um four layers of newspaper saturate it then put your mulch on it and it will naturally stay moist you know it, mm-hmm. as soon as it's hidden from the sun by that mulch it's going to stay moist and it will slowly but surely break down and if that's all you've got terrific and you know it's not not everyone can go out and just buy lots of um mulch or or geotextile fabric or whatever mm-hmm. if that's what you've got use it i i I think it's a great way it's it's recycling at its simplest you know it's
0: really good for sure and also uh, i mean i think a lot of people don't always consider using plants as a living mulch things like the myoporum uh, parvifolium and i mean there's a there's a bunch of really uh, low growing Native plant, well, any plants, exotic plants as well, which serve beautifully well as living mulch, and they protect the soil. They keep it a little bit moist, and they provide a spot for lizards to um, scurry through and 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 not get eaten by chickens and things like that. Yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> well, I, I would say, you know, that little spot um, where I have the temacy, the little pink one. Um, I did a little experiment a couple of years ago, and I I just. I had a massive of uh, um, tubes and uh, prostrate grevilleas, um gastrolobium, um the lemon drops, uh, and the the um temacea. I'm trying to think what else about yeah, three other gravilias and I mass planted them in this particularly weedy patch. So do it twofold, a mulch, let's say, but also a weed suppressant by doing that mass planting of those tubes. Mm. Which I mean, I, I know you both know this very well, but It is something we don't think about. And now I couldn't get a good photograph of it. We have an absolute profusion of flower Mm. at this time of year as well. It's just
2: absolutely stunning. Really. I love mass planting. I I, I think that's like the perfect way to suppress a lot of weeds. Mm. And um, I definitely, especially with all those like species like your daisies and your bulbine lilies and Wallenbergias and all those sort of things, just really pack it all in Mm. and they just smother out everything you do you get these beautiful flowers they all kind of weave in together Mm. I've got Mm. like yeah the wallies and um the bulbines at the moment just weaving together it's got this purple and um yellow
0: and oh it's Mm. stunning
2: yeah gorgeous
0: hey Emma I was wondering why you've decided that you prefer the true grasses over lamandra
2: um, I found that the Lomandras, uh during different seasons, they tended to get a little bit dry looking and mm-hmm. um, the polars seem to perform better, especially in the rural environment. Mm-hmm. They, they tend to become a bit more profuse and they look softer. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the um, obviously, they've still got their application, they've still got their spot, but I found that um, during all the wind and the frosts and things like that, the the colour of them was sort of like, they were green and then they had this brown and yellowy tinge on top. And it was, in, in some areas it looked really good, but on masse it became a little bit, um, for me as a designer, jarring on my eyes. I yeah. thought it didn't, the colour didn't work as well, compared to the power mm-hmm. um, And the power is very versatile um it, it seems to do well in so many varieties in the dry in the wet in the frost in the winds it's just great um and it's very very soft uh I found that that worked perfectly and the ostrostiphas the themeters they also did really really well too but I'm not saying that I would not use um lamandra I, I think it's just I would change it that my application wouldn't be as mass with that mm-hmm. depending on the area yeah mm. um and these are just the things that uh, i've just observed recently so mm. um obviously this could change depending on the environment if it wasn't so exposed if it was a little bit more enclosed i'd probably go more of a lamandra uh, or maybe like lamandra longifolia just in one so i have a nice really big beautiful clump or a lamandra hystric for a big clump um yeah i just yeah. I think I just like that soft wispiness, and the poet did that perfectly. Yeah, and of course, that
1: also. The colours, too, I was thinking, because with with Mm. your um, perhaps your Lamandra Frosty Tops, for example, I think is very soft and wispy. Mm. Um, And it's, it can, they can, some, when the very green Lamandras, they can start to look a little bit strained, I believe. Mm. But I think if you go into those blue greys, you you tend to they are the softer ones which uh, coincide beautifully and, and work in with um, yeah the
2: grasses. I, I did use the seascape um, for that blue tinge, but they just for everyone to sort of know in the frost and the wind they did not do well. Mm-hmm. So definitely, um, and maybe it was more the frost than the wind, but because um, you know, you would use them in coastal environments. But um, yeah, I they didn't they didn't do well. But, um, and using the grasses mess, as yeah. well,
0: I suppose, also gives that other extra habitat element. Of um, there's a lot of bird species which use mm-hmm. the seeds, um, and they're also very important uh, food source for various moth and butterfly species for the larvae of those. So another element mm-hmm. there for for using those. Hey guys, look, uh, John um, from Sylvanvale has called in, and he's got a dam. Um, that looks pretty relatively big and deep. And the birds brought in the swamp lily, the Otelia ovale which I don't know. Mm -hmm. Um, Now that's multiplied, but apparently it didn't flower last summer. So he's just wondering how can he get them to flower again? And um, also when is the best plant to transplant them? Em, have you used them at all? Uh,
2: I, Otelia sort of naturally occurs and it's a lovely little plant that sort of occupies those deep, I find it in cattle troughs as well and Mm. everywhere. Uh, I'm not actually sure why it didn't flower maybe, I I wouldn't, I I don't know that, you know, I see it flowering here and there but I've never really observed that and and like I said I haven't actually planted it. but what did he did he say he wanted to transplant it? Yeah, I think he what? wants to,
0: he wants to get them to flower, and he oh, also yep. wants to transplant them to another dam. Uh,
2: usually, like as long as there's a, a sediment in the dam, you find that these species start to occupy, and hence why, like you know, the cattle troughs used to get it because there used to be a debris that would start to accumulate at the bottom of the trough, and obviously the uh, if the trough connected to the dam there's a seed or it might be fragments of this plant starts to grow so if he wants to transplant to another dam it's just got to make sure that it does have um, a silty layer to be able to plant these back into mm-hmm. and I usually find that um, as long as the water isn't so deep and you've got that clarity because a lot of the the dams they tend to be clay lined and you're just going to get clay water mm-hmm. um, he, he probably finds that this dam the water is quite Especially if this plant is growing. So um, that can be an issue uh, if, if there is too much um the clayey water because the light can't penetrate and help the plant. So it it it's an observation first. He has to check the other dam um to see if that is the case. If it is, um he can start planting it around the banks, um, because obviously the light can get in a little bit better and then the plants can grow and take off. Mm-hmm. In terms of the flowering. the seasons have been quite funny these last couple of years. You know, we've had a very wet season. Um, A lot of our daisy species haven't been able to um, uh, seed as normal because, you know, the nights haven't been as cold. So they kind of need that Track the the really warm days and the cooler nights to be able to go into that reproductive cycle yeah you know there's a lot of different factors that could be a reason why they're not flowering and um it's just a change in the seasons but I can't give them that I don't know why it's not
0: flowering yeah yeah, yeah. I, I think I mean that can happen with with lots of different plants some have a one year off one year on sort of system of flowering so hopefully uh, this year it will be a different situation mm. oh. yeah very tricky and and um in terms of uh transplanting i mean surely that would just be a matter of getting in there digging them up a bit and getting getting a bit wet and um yeah moving that's them the to garden. another dam i mean if the birds can do it then surely we can do it well that's <laughs> it
2: it was like getting these feet wet and um try and dig up a bit of that soil profile and and introduce that into the other dam but again I'm very interested to know if that current dam that he has is cleaner in clarity Mm -hmm. and compared to the other, you might find that, yeah, I noticed on my parents' property that um, some of the dams uh, were actually, they must have been a wetland or a water body before. And then obviously they've been excavated a bit um, to be able to get more water in them. But those ones that were the wetlands before, the water was so clean, mm-hmm. and that's because the existing species were there and they're filtering. Um, there's that sediment that's coming in that buffers the clay liner, or they, these probably these systems probably don't even have clay. That's why they are already a wetland. So, yeah, so that buffering that clay liner layer, it it, it will stop that um, clayey water. That's why I do also introduce soil in there to stop that.
0: Yeah, yeah, fantastic! Hey guys, um, we're sort of gonna run out of time in a little while, just a, a couple of minutes to go. So, um, anything gardening related you're up to today? Oh, I'm weeding.
2: I always, I think oh, I do my place are you, every yeah? day. Yeah, oh, I love weeding. I could go out there. I just see every time. Oh, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll be out. I'll do a little bit of weeding nearly every day. I just, love yeah. it. Yeah, I will be actually doing, putting
1: those kind on of the stylus in AB because yeah. I, where I was going to put them, um, the oxalis, I don't even want to mention that word, mm. um, the oxalis was so horrendous and I just thought I really have to do um, a good job here on top of the fact that they're incredibly heavy clay. So I was going to bring in some Uh, some compost to just loosen up that soil profile Mm -hmm. and uh, give them a little bit of drainage because I don't think they'd be that happy otherwise. But uh, a bit Mm -hmm. of veggie garden and uh, a bit more contemplation. And as I said to you, can I just quickly mention that the the arena, that shag pile, cousin, whatever you want to call it, Mm -hmm. um, recently I had to transplant nine. They were not very big. They had very small root systems. One of the reasons I was moving them and i put them into a really good spot uh planted had rain everything was terrific about them uh and 2 weeks later they're dead as doornails Aww. so do not transplant i really think um it'd be really really lucky if you got them to survive so that's a mm. beautiful little casuarina very disappointing so i'm looking at that ab at more. least
0: at least you tried because they weren't going to be noticeable where you had planted them they were going to, they right. were getting taken over by the Westringer, weren't they
2: yes, absolutely they were indeed yeah. it's interesting listening to other designers because i'm always under the notion of trialing plants in my own home and i trial it on my parents farm and you know i do all that because there is so much learning before you want to introduce that into someone else's garden and it's nice to hear like all these stories because it's exactly
0: what i'll do absolutely hey guys i'll do that again (laughs) i want to thank you both so much um for joining us on joining us on the show today and sharing your knowledge so that was Loretta Childs and Emmeline Bowman thank you so much I'd like to thank our producer Liz um, for also doing the socials and also for the other 3CR uh, team members who have been helping out getting the gardening show back live on air Um, thank you to the listeners for tuning in again and look forward to chatting to you next week so until then it's bye for now